Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who taught Donald Trump everything he knows about Twitter, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today is November 8th, 2017, which means it's the one-year anniversary of one of the most surprising days in American political history. To commemorate this special occasion, I'm in New York City with my friend Hillary Rosen. She's a political strategist for SKD Knickerbocker and a political commentator for CNN. Hey, Hillary. Hey. How you doing? Hillary and I are doing a bunch of interviews together this month, talking with some really interesting people from the political world. We started last week with the vice president of public policy of Yelp, Luther Lowe, and Washington, D.C. super lawyer, Beth Wilkinson. But as I mentioned, today is the one-year anniversary of the election of 2016, which is why we're excited to be talking to Katie Turr, an NBC News correspondent and the anchor of MSNBC Live. She's the author of a new book called Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. What campaign was that again, Katie? (laughs) Welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. Clearly, I'm talking about the uh, George Bush campaign. <laughs> you no, George wish. Bush Sr. We campaign. all wish that he was running again. <laughs> We're going to get to your book, which is about the Trump campaign and how you got to it. But let's have a little bit of your background, how you got to cover this in order to write this book, because you're not a political journalist initially. No, absolutely not. I was yeah. a foreign correspondent. I had just moved to London to um, uh, live a life overseas. Uh, four years was the... This the, is for NBC. Yeah, for, it was the minimum of time that I was going to be how there. How did you get and to NBC? Just I, I got to NBC the the good old fashioned way, uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Mm-hmm. No, um, I was a, a one man band uh, mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, and then I was a uh, one man band for the Weather Channel, chasing tornadoes. Wow. And then I job. weaseled my way into WNBC. Good, how could you leave that job? That's like the because best. Super fun. because it was it paid absolutely nothing. I mean, it paid. <laughs> I mean, it didn't pay. Period. And uh, I was tired of carrying my own camera. Um, and then I made my way to NBC, and 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 here I am now. So you were in London, and what happened? You were just sitting. So there I'm in and- London. I'm there for for nine months. I you were uh, covering what? I was covering terrorism. I was covering uh, feature stories. I just did a story about trying to uh, to find the devil in the foothills of the of the Swiss Alps. Mm-hmm. I, I I covered everything: plane crashes, uh, whatever came up that that happened overseas. Um, and I came back to the states to uh, fulfill a make a wish. Um, request and then also to remind my bosses that I exist yeah. because if things aren't um, going to hell overseas they, they tend to forget about you and right. I am standing around the newsroom just um, shooting the uh, shit with some friends and Donald Trump is is in the news uh, Univision has dropped him Macy's has dropped him NBC's dropped his pageants and somebody said we need someone to cover this who can we get this was about the Mexican this was about after you know right after he announced this is when he said Mexico is sending its uh, sending rapids over the border and um, Brad Jaffe who's a who's a uh, senior producer on Nightly said Katie she's just here she's standing around the newsroom and so that's how I got put on my first Donald Trump uh, the so candidate story you were still a London bureau I person. was I lived in London Right. Officially. And they just said, we'll send you. Until April of last year. 
Is this how these decisions are made, Hillary? Well, it, it is, right? Because then they sent you to New Hampshire to cover an yeah. event, and you ended up never leaving the campaign. Never. So I, I got told that I was being assigned the campaign full-time, but it would be six weeks tops. Right. It turned well, out because to be at the time, they days. didn't think they needed to assign a seasoned political well, reporter to, to the there campaign. There was a lot of there was a lot of pushback were, from the Washington bureau. Why would we put somebody on this guy? He's a joke. Right. Nobody is taking him seriously. Right. He's going to drop out. This is all for publicity. Right. And at the time, even though the Trump campaign was um, was adamant about their their desire to stay on the race, but there were questions even within the campaign about how long he was going to do this. What did and, you think? What did you were you like? annoyed or just like Ugh. I thought they don't take me seriously uh-huh. clearly if they're going to put me on this it's not like they're assigning me to Jeb mm-hmm. um, but I, I also thought hey listen what, sure six weeks New York City it's fine I, I can uh, I can go back to London after that mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it, it very quickly turned into something much larger. Mm-hmm. At first, it, it didn't seem like much because it was just, you know, the first rally I went to was a couple hundred people around a backyard pool. Uh, and he was talking about all of his standing ovations. And I'm thinking, what is what, what is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's calling me out, telling me that I'm not paying attention to him. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking this is this, this is at backyard rallies. This was this was the very first rally I ever went to. Yeah. Uh, but quickly after that. Can I ask you, did you know him? Because we recently no. interviewed Maggie Hammond, who had covered him for years and years and years. No, see, I, I, I even though I worked in, in New York City, um, I had never uh, directly covered uh, Donald Trump because he uh, he was tabloid fodder. Um, mm-hmm. He was a reality show TV host. He wasn't somebody that w- I was covering fires and, you were in and Brooklyn, shootings. Right? And well, I was in New York he City, didn't too. He did a lot of Brooklyn. No. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I worked for WPIX and WNBC, so I, I covered the, the tri-state area for a while. But, I mean... He wasn't a thing right. beyond sometimes appearing right. on Fox News and, and talking about birtherism or or being the, the host of The Apprentice. He wasn't a thing for um, New York News at the time um, that I was covering that. So, And people in New York didn't take him seriously. No one took um, him seriously. We'll get, we'll get to this, but the you know, little footnote in history, he is the only candidate to have won for president ever that actually lost his home congressional district. Yeah. Because the people who knew him best didn't vote for him. I mean, you he's got a long history here, yeah. a long history in the city, and it's not the most positive history in the city. There are right. lots of fans of his here, no, no doubt, but... Um, you know, you have you had years of, of Jimmy Breslin just right. calling him out and, and calling him, um, seeing him before anybody else saw him, seeing him for just somebody who is a you know a snake oil salesman essentially, someone who sells his name more than he sells right. uh, anything uh, of value. But and that worked you- for him and worked for you. You said in the book that you were a political neophyte covering a political neophyte. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really instructive. That, but that in essence, you were able to see something in him that traditional political reporters wouldn't have seen. Or, or did you? What was your first impressions? My first impression was was what is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. But it was, it, but it, it changed because mm-hmm. I did that. Uh, I sat down for an interview with him. It was very contentious. Early. And I early. This is July eighth of twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. I thought when I sat down that I was a part of his act. This was just what he was doing to get attention for his brand. So I presumed he'd go after me. I presumed he'd try to to tear me down because I worked for NBC. We dropped his pageant. It was uh, could be a nice bit of revenge for him. But once the interview was over, I, I quickly realized that he was pretty serious because mm-hmm. he started screaming at me off camera. 
telling me that I would never be president, uh, telling me or mocking that, me for stumbling. That he would never be, or, or that you, no, you would never be president. I could never. Katie Turner oh, could, could never be what? president. <laughs> what? I, I know. I was and like, you what? said, well, what? I'm not Are you running? running? I said, I'm not running. Yeah. I, I said, I have no plans to run. And my back of my head, I, I thought, well, neither will you. Yeah. But yeah. I bit my tongue because, uh, you know, I'm so what, did you not think he would? Did you see some? Because one of the things I remember in that time period is being at a party, Hillary, you might have been there, where all the political reporters were very typical. They were very ensconced in Washington, and they have a certain tone, political reporters do. And they were all making fun of him. And I had relatives in, in other states and had been to them, and they loved Trump. And they yeah. the Trump they saw was the apprentice Trump, and yeah, they, well, they liked that Trump. And I thought, oh, I think he might have a shot. And it was really everybody literally yelled me like you're ridiculous. You don't know politics. I'm like I don't know. He seems I'm, you know I'm a lesbian from San Francisco and he appeals to me and I don't know why because I hate him like kind of thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like this yeah. is not my candidate. Well, and, and I think there there is there is something that that I think a lot of people who even hate him like about him find right. entertaining, find uh, charismatic, find um, absolutely find uh, 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 that that draw you into him. There are reasons that people might say, you know what, I I don't like the guy. I think he's crass. I think he's terrible. But the system doesn't work. Right. And let's put something else in there. Why not try something different? I was in Arizona um, Mm -hmm. in July of of 2015 when everybody was saying he's an absolute joke. 5,000 people showed up and waited in line to see him in Arizona Mm -hmm. in Phoenix. Uh, Soon after that, 20,000 people showed up in Mobile, Alabama. Clearly there was a vast disconnect between what Washington was saying, what New York was feeling, and what people in the country were feeling. And I think that I was able to recognize that and I was able to um, find value in that sooner because I didn't have the preconceptions of what you can and cannot do in a political campaign. I mean, I knew you don't, you know, criticize our veterans. But when I would call the RNC, they would tell me uh, after the John McCain flap that there's no way any any Republican voter would stand for that. They would never stand for that. They are not going to vote for him. They are going to force him out of this race. Right. I promise you this. Right. And then I show I then I go to these rallies and there's there's thousands of people and they're saying, ah, you know, he's just speaking his mind. So there 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 was there was a reality to what was happening on the ground and then there was this this twilight zone to what uh, the people presumed was happening um, in the How did you communicate that back to, to headquarters, NBC headquarters? And- I mean, we had we had morning conference conference calls every day, and every day there would be this this controversy or that controversy, and the whole room would be whipped up and and would give all the reasons why this was now uh, he's the end. This the was campaign, the end right? for Donald Trump, and I remember just you know for, at first with a kind of small voice because I who the hell was I, uh, and then towards the end of the campaign in a louder voice saying, "Guys, you might think this is a giant." deal, but I am not seeing that on the road. People mm-hmm. do not care. They, the harder we we push at him, the the more we we shed a light on him, the more we fact check him, the more we contextualize him, mm-hmm. the more they like him. They hate us. Right. They yeah. hate us. They yeah. don't they don't believe anything we're saying. Even if they do, they don't care yeah. because they want something different. And that different, that change is Donald Trump. I, I was like the Simpsons meme, old man yells at cloud. <laughs> right. You, I think, um, and I encourage everyone listening to, if you haven't gotten this book, to read this book, because I have read a lot of political campaign books, and this one was is really good. It's really readable. And I noticed just at the outset that one of the things that was so different about it was that you don't really focus on the campaign as much. 
which is what um, sort of political strategists like me did all year. We focused on he doesn't seem to have structure or he doesn't have an operation. He's not professionalizing anything. How can he possibly turn this kind of street popularity into a, a presidential victory? That it, it, there, there was just nothing there except a bunch of rallies. But your book really promotes the voter mm. that came in contact with him and the passion that he engendered. And I wish that we got a more of a chance to talk about the voter on mm. the air uh, for the various broadcasts we do. And I think that's a major mistake that um, the media made, mm-hmm. uh, the free press made. Did you try to do that? Was that? I did. I mean, I certainly did. But, you know... And it's difficult because you have you have a minute and 30, minute 45 seconds to mm-hmm. tell an entire story of the day. And Donald Trump will – and we have this tendency to want to do the, the most recent thing. Whatever crazy thing. Whatever crazy thing happened latest in the day is what you lead right. with so that it's freshest. Hot so take. That, so that people don't feel like they're watching old news. And I think that's kind of misguided. Um, so we would end up talking about his tweets or the Republican Party reaction or the Democratic Party reaction or this analyst or that analyst saying that this was the end. Rather than talking to the voter and trying to find out why they why, why they believed in him and why they thought he was a better option than everybody else, despite all of the uh, various outrageous like you can't things possibly like So talk about say. that voter. Talk but, about how you, you interacted with that voter and – what you thought of them? Well, the, the, there's a. I talk about it in the in the prologue of the book, and don't you read a little? Just bit. this this little uh, the sense of of why they were um, why they were so upset, why they felt so left out, why mm-hmm. they felt like they weren't being heard, and this is how. I encapsulate it. I'll I'll just read a a portion of the book. I've learned that none of this matters to an electoral college, a majority of American voters are talking about all the controversies. They've decided that this menacing, indecent, post-truth landscape is where they want to live for the next four years. Look, I get it. You can't tell a joke without worrying. You'll lose your job. Your 20-something can't find work. Your town is boarded up. Patriotism gets called racism. Your food is full of chemicals. Your body is full of pills. You call tech support and reach someone in India. Bills are spiking, but your paycheck is not. And you can't send your kid to school with peanut butter. On top of it all, no one seems to care. You feel like you're screaming at the top of your lungs in a room full of people wearing earplugs. I get it. I had just spent nine months out of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't in, get in London. In London, all over the world, really. You turn the television on. You don't see commercials for pharmaceutical company for pills. Mm-hmm. You don't see those overseas. People aren't screaming at each other overseas. Uh, you don't have a ban on peanut butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there is a sense of of country in in a place like France. There's a sense of country in a in a in a in a place like the UK and in 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 uh, you know the various cities that I visited overseas. And when I came back and I and I heard people say, you know, I just want jobs to go to Americans. I feel like you have to come into this country legally. That is just fair. I understand that. I understand where that frustration is. You go to small towns and and there's no charm there any longer. It's Mm -hmm. not for lack of trying. It's just that the the young people in those towns have moved on to better opportunities in in cities. So big box corporations uh, swoop in. There's no mom and pop stores. There doesn't seem, there doesn't feel like a future for these areas. you don't feel good. Mm-hmm. You don't feel good. And and call me crazy, but I I 
When I'm overseas, I eat whatever I want. I feel fine. When I'm here, I eat I eat, and my stomach hurts. There's something in our food. Mm-hmm. You don't feel good mm-hmm. in, this, in, in, in your daily life in this country. I understand why people just felt like they were not being heard, mm-hmm. not paid attention to. They didn't matter. And they elect these politicians. They might th- like their local politicians, but they go to Washington and suddenly nothing gets of, done. Yeah. And they become creatures of Washington and they're just fighting and everyone takes their sides. And I can see why someone like Donald Trump, who refuses to back down, refuses to apologize, refuses to play by the rules, can be appealing. Mm -hmm. Because at the very least, he's somebody who's not an ideologue. Hey, he won't care um, about this certain thing. He won't care about that certain thing. He is going to just get things done. He's going to make a deal. He's going to shake Washington Mm -hmm. into working again. I understood uh, that feeling, even for those who didn't find him to be a palatable human being. Right. There's also the impact of television. Again, what I was saying about The Apprentice, that someone, some political group was talking about that, like, they know him in a different way than... You know, one hundred twenty zip code one hundred twenty two. They do, and 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 this garners laughter when I when I mention this, but it's it's the truth. Uh, you you talk to people and you say Donald Trump doesn't know anything about health care, um, doesn't know anything about uh, policy, and they'll say, well, he doesn't need to. Why doesn't he need to? Well, he'll hire the correct people to do it. How do you know that? How are you so confident in it? I saw him do it on The Apprentice, mm-hmm. and. He did, he's always done a very good job of that, selling himself as the smartest person in the room, selling himself as, as a, a boss, deal maker, as, as a boss, boss mm-hmm. as as unique among men. Um, he's been doing it for decades. You talk about that in the book about how many times it came up during the campaign about whether how he ran his race was a good gauge of how he would govern. Yeah. And there was this sense uh, among a lot of mainstream businessmen, for instance, who thought, well, he's saying he's picked out, you know, um, uh, specific populations and appealed to them with specific, you know, coded racism words or coded, you know, women issues or whatever it was that he's speaking in code to get elected to certain segments of the population. But once he gets there, it's going to be different. Um, once he gets there, he's going to be very mainstream. He's going to, you I know, be a be a good businessman and the like. And and so you talk about how uh, important that was, and how you tried on the campaign trail to to say that he was going to govern precisely the same. So way. my question now is: yeah. Are you surprised no. with how ineffective he has been at, no. at getting things done? No, no. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we kept being told by people within his campaign, people in his family, uh, that he would pivot. He'd change. For the general election, he'd move towards the middle. He didn't really care about the things that he was saying. He was just trying to get Republican and voters And he said it off side. the record on a lot of issues. Yeah, he did. I mean, and he's somebody who was a Democrat before he was a Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't. He doesn't have a loyalty to any certain uh, policy. He mm-hmm. has a loyalty to hearing the, the crowd roar. Mm-hmm. Uh, to hearing applause, to hearing cheers, to having people like him. So uh, I kept being told he's transactional. He's transactional. Right. He'll do whatever is going to he needs to do to get himself elected. He'll move towards the middle. But it became very clear that he didn't want to do that because the the stuff that got the loudest cheers were the personal attacks. Mm-hmm. It was the vitriol. It was the anger. It was the outrageous comment. Uh, it was the I'm not being treated fairly and everybody around me 
criticizing me or everyone that might criticize me is is not on my side, therefore not on your side. People really liked that message. Um, so when he got so into – So that's why he stays there now. That's why he stays Because there, it still gets the it loudest applause. It still gets applause. the loudest applause. I mean – <laughs> You're not going to get giant applause for nuanced for nuanced policy right, for nuanced diplomacy. For people were we, people were tired of that. They not all people. I'm talking about Trump voters. People wanted to be told that there are simple solutions to the world's problems, complex problems. Yeah. When we get back, we're going to talk about the campaign itself and you being on it over time because you became the subject. I know you probably don't like a lot of attention on yourself, but you got a lot of attention uh, and it got a little dangerous. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about. Your family's background, which is in journalism, too. Um, and so you had some sense of dramatic incidents. Uh, we're here with Katie Turr from NBC News and MSNBC. She has a new book out called Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. <laughs> is, it, is it actually patented the craziest? Um, so. There's probably some crazy ones, too, that we don't remember. But we'll be back. We'll be talking more. I'm also here with my co-host, Hillary Rosen. If you're enjoying this interview, then you should check out one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Hello, Kara. You know what? You what? look exactly as I imagined you. <laughs> I know that. I'm wearing makeup today because I was on you television. You look a little more awesome than Yes, normal. thank you so much. My I talked to one of my, my, my personal favorite people. Yes, who was that? Uh, Me? Media this week. Yeah, I didn't talk In to addition you. to you, yeah. Dana Gould, longtime uh, stand-up comedian. He was a writer for The Simpsons. His great podcast himself called the Dana Gould Hour, and he also has this very weird show on IFC called Stan Against Evil. Oh, it's a little wordplay there, right? Eh? Yeah, and it's a kind of heart horror, kind of, kind of funny. It's great. He's great, I, and he stands against evil. Presumably, Stan stands against evil. He wrote. He, he he helps Stan stand against evil. It's it's said it whatever. Well, you listen to the All podcast. Right, okay. It's great, but it's All how right. to make it's how to make a living as a comedian and a podcaster and a writer in Hollywood in 2017. Fantastic, Peter. That sounds great. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm here in New York City with my co-host Hillary Rosen, political strategist and CNN analyst. She is my co-host for the month of November. We're talking politics in special bonus episodes of Recode Decode. And we're here with Katie Turr, who is the well-known NBC reporter, on-air reporter. What, what do you call yourself, Katie? Uh, NBC correspondent, correspondent, MSNBC anchor. Anchor, okay. Presenter. If you're anchor, overseas. presenter. You're a presenter. And we're talking about specifically her new book, Unbelievable. We're going to talk about a lot of other things, uh, which was which just came out. It's about her time on the campaign trail, her unlikely what happened because she was on a, a campaign that she didn't think expect she was going to be on. Expect to be on. And she was not a political reporter. Um, so just very briefly, you come from a journalist that you're – your, yeah, my parents are journalists. Your parents are journalists and very well-known ones. My parents um, started Los Angeles News Service in mm -hmm. the 80s. Uh, my dad convinced a helicopter company to lease some helicopter when he was like 24 or something. And they started uh, covering Los Angeles News from the air, mm -hmm. uh, police pursuits, uh, fires. Uh, shootings, anything that you could see uh, from a helicopter in Los Angeles, which is good because Los Angeles is a giant place. Uh, my mom would hang out of the helicopter and shoot the video, mm -hmm. and my dad would fly and report. So they um, they popularized the live uh, police chase on television. Mm -hmm. They popularized uh, reporting from the air. They um, have shot and reported on some of the most famous images, scenes from Los Angeles during the 90s especially. Specifically um, O.J.? 
specifically OJ. They were the ones that found him on that slow speed pursuit. My dad remembers other assignment editors yelling, find that asshole tur. Because uh, <laughs> we were, Cause my if parents you find were, that asshole tur, you'd find OJ. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, <laughs> my parents were always first on the scene to every story. They had a knack for it. Uh, they were the ones um, hovering over the, the corner of Florence and Normandy during the LA riots when mm-hmm. Reginald Denny, the red gravel truck driver, got pulled from his truck, the cab of his truck and beaten to within an inch their footage of his after the life. Rodney King verdict. Yeah. That was after the Rodney King yeah. during yeah during the riots. Um, and uh, so they they made they made history. They did. Yeah. So what did that teach you? Did you bring because that a lot of tabloidy? It's a little more you know it's more it's a, dramatic. It's, a little, it's the car chases were tabloidy certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, journalism nonetheless, but it's a very di- it, it introduced a different kind of journalism. It did, and this is the nineties. I mean. Mm-hmm. The real world had just started. People were were getting fascinated by watching things happen in the moment. Technology had moved forward fast enough to to bring you those images live. You could have a microwave on your on your helicopter, not a microwave like you have in your house, but a a microwave for projecting images that would um, send uh, the images that you shot at your camera live into uh, a TV screen. That, sure. That's new. Were you up there with them? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, since I was a child. Mm-hmm. That you would go up in the helicopter. I lived in the helicopter. That's awesome. I lived in the helicopter. Yeah. I, I I was so comfortable in the helicopter. I we were we were my dad was covering the Rose Parade. I was four or five or something, and he was doing radio reports. And um, I got up out of my seat, took my seatbelt off, opened the door of the helicopter, which is a complicated thing mm-hmm. for anybody, let alone a four or five year old, and just wanted to see the clo- the the floats better. So I just looked outside. And remember, I'd always seen my mom with the door open, and my dad. And I'm not wearing a seatbelt; I'm just standing there oh in a helicopter, God. hundreds of feet above the above the ground. And my dad said he almost had a heart attack because <laughs> he's flying the helicopter. He's flying too. the helicopter. He calmly said, "Katie, please sit down." Right. Um, no, but so they they so they covered. Um, they covered... Little did he know that day that their daughter would grow up and win the Walter Cronkite Award for reporting. I think my parents pretty had good, good expectations for yeah, me. I don't yeah. think that they're surprised. Yeah. I think they're proud. I hope they're proud. But so journalism so they, is... they risked they risked right their lives for their journalism, and I say that because after the Reginald Denny beating, after they shot that video and then testified against the gang members who tried to kill Reginald Denny, mm-hmm. they got they death threats. They got death threats. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, they also called out the LAPD at the time, saying the LAPD had abandoned the city during the riots. So they were nobody's friend for a little while. Because they saw it. So they weren't afraid of speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. They weren't afraid of saying saying something that would put their life at risk. They felt like it was the right thing to do. So that that's how I understood journalism, that it was it was worthy of, of risking everything for so when I started doing this campaign and I got death threats myself. Well, talk about why. Let's explain to people who don't, aren't following. Donald everything. Trump didn't like the media or doesn't like the media. Or does, but uh, pretends he's he doesn't. obsessed with it. But yeah. He, yeah, he likes you when you're nice. It's a permanent he doesn't foil. like you when you are not nice, in his words. And that was almost the title of the book, Not Nice. <laughs> so I... Um, you I, had a contentious relationship? We had a contentious relationship. He He... If I said something that he he was pleased with, he would try to introduce me to, to the rallies as if I was this wonderful reporter. One time he tried to introduce me almost almost like I was his wife. Like, just, mm-hmm. this is Katie Turr, everyone. Right. Um, what was nice in hers? What was... 
I don't. I guess you know he, he's leading in in this poll or that, or he he's moderating his tone. This was mostly early on in the campaign. I, I, listen, I always I was always the one saying on TV that his supporters don't care that he's got a real chance uh, of winning. I was I was always that person, mm-hmm. um, and so I he liked that, that. I'm I'm sure that pleased him to a degree, but I was also always the person who would call him out when he wasn't telling the truth. Right. I was always the person who would fact check him immediately after a speech. And sometimes those fact checks would go on for minutes and minutes and minutes where I just I would just read all of the things that he said and tell you all the reasons why they were not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't sugarcoat anything. I wasn't going to be cowed um, by, by his force of personality, by his bullying, or by his charm. Was it just him and after, after those um, moments, I mean, our, our listeners who are not political experts may not realize that you go to these uh, political events and rallies and they put the press, they put they put us like in, in, in essentially what in the Trump campaign became called the pen. Um, and uh, you're sort of cordoned off from the rest of the folks. Sometimes you can sneak around and um, talk to actual real people, but they, they put you in a single place. So Donald Trump used to point to the press pen frequently. Look at that scum. And call you out yeah. personally. Uh, often he would look at that disgraceful Katie Turry. He called liar. you disgraceful. He called you a liar. And the whole crowd would then shift their attention to the press pen and, and point and boo at you. Yeah. What did that and call feel me like? names. What did that feel like? So that's when you recalled your parents' uh, strength. And uh, you know, I I didn't recall it in the top of my head. Later on, when I was thinking, why why was I not freaked out as freaked out about this as maybe someone else would have been? I remembered my parents, but um, it's just the way we grew up. So he would call me out a lot, and yeah, you're right. We were in a pen. It's not unusual to be in in a enclosed area if you're in the press, because that's where you put your equipment. Right. It was unusual because they wouldn't let us out. Right. Right. Um. And and then he would point us out and, and get the entire room. So wouldn't to, let you to, out. Just you cannot leave this area. Once he got to the venue, we were not allowed to leave, not even to go to the bathroom unless we had an escort, a bathroom buddy. Why did you all put up with that? Just curious. You just couldn't. I, you know, I, I kept pushing back. I kept I kept saying, why are we dealing with this? Uh, the Secret Service was going along with it. That didn't that didn't make any sense. The Secret Service doesn't work for the campaign. It works for the American voter. Why are they? putting us in this pen why are they doing the bidding of of the this campaign it's it's a, it's against the constitution i mean mm-hmm. we've got a first amendment right to right. the clinton to campaign talk to didn't do that they they kept you away from the candidate but they didn't the clinton campaign didn't keep didn't you away, keep away from, from the, the crowds, crowds. it yeah. didn't make any sense we 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 you know we fought it we fought a lot of things we right we tried i i would just walk out and, and <laughs> <laughs> just give attitude to people. But essentially by doing that, you became part of his act. We did. So, And but, so you had to then consistently go on air afterwards and reinterpret the act. Yeah. Because all the networks had started covering his rallies live, which right. is what they all got criticized for later, yeah, yeah. was giving him, quote, too much attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it's, you know, it's, it's a discussion that is worthy um, of being had going forward. How much attention should we be, we be giving him and how much should we be airing live? I think it's a discussion about whether or not we should be airing the press briefings they live. They did it yesterday. I was so annoyed. I mean, I, it, at what point is it, is it, is it worthwhile any longer? Right. I mean, they're, they're not telling you anything. And, and then you realize how stupid the questions they're, are. They're, they're, it's just, it, so go back to the anyway, point, Kara so, so, so you sorry, didn't you're personalize getting me, You're getting me into my daily struggles. Um, <laughs> so you didn't personalize it is what you're saying. So I tried not to personalize Despite how personal it. he so made he it. So he would call me out all the time. I was used to it. The, the time that was really scary 
uh, was the day of the Muslim ban when he announced that he didn't want any Muslims to come to the country. We are at a rally in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this is right after San Bernardino had happened, where that couple had murdered a bunch of people in an office party. President Obama, the day before, um, Donald Trump made this announcement, had done a speech on terrorism, and then Donald Trump comes out and says, I'm going to ban Muslims because we don't know what the heck is going on. The administration in power is not properly vetting people. There are Muslims in your neighborhood hiding other Muslims who are making bombs in their living rooms, and they're out to get you, the American people. Republican voters at the time felt like uh, the biggest thing that they feared was being the victim of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Republican voters, majority of Republican voters felt this way. So we are in a press pen in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. We have just spoken to a number of supporters, none of whom uh, were bothered by this idea. They all they all welcomed it. Um, the, the, the harshest criticism we got was, I have to think about this. Others were saying we should deport all Muslims that happen to be in this country. So there was a lot of there was a lot of anger. Donald Trump walks into this room and he's whipping up this crowd. And before he gets to the Muslim ban, and and he basically is saying the media is complicit in this because we're not reporting it. So the media is putting your life at risk, dear voter. Um, And so he takes the stage and and the crowd is angry and he looks angry. And before he goes to the Muslim ban, he goes on a riff about the press. And then he goes on a riff about me in particular. He's angry because of tweets I sent a few nights earlier where I talked about protesters interrupting his rally and uh, forcing him to abruptly end his end his rally speech, which happened, which happened furious about it about this because he cannot look weak so furious at me already tweeted about how i should be fired I'm, my phone is already you know uh, ablaze with people telling me that i'm a terrible person um telling me that i that i deserve to die and so i am sitting in this rally on the riser but i'm sitting down i'm, I'm not trying i'm trying not to be um uh, i'm not trying not to stand out it, it, it just something did not feel safe and then he says, little Katie, Katie Turr, she's back there. And he points me out. And the entire room, we're in the belly of a warship. The entire room turns around and boos and screams and calls me names. Men are standing on chairs. And I think to myself, just smile and wave. Mm-hmm. Because what are you going to do? I mean, how are you going to uh, diffuse the situation? You smile and wave. You you make it seem like it's all part of an act. Um, and then you go on with your with your work and you move on. I mean, you just compartmentalize it. But you had to be escorted out of there by security. So uh, when the rally was over, a Trump staffer came up to me and said, these guys are going to walk you out. And pointed pointed out two guys from Secret Service to walk me to my car because it was a pitch black walk down a, a gangway um, to, to my car, which was parked with all of the other Trump supporters. And then my phone, uh, once again, going nuts. People... Um, you know, uh, defending me and then also other people telling me what a horrible person I am. Um, they didn't quite use those words, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. More, they, were, they were a little, little more. Um, uh, and then after that, you actually, harsh. NBC sent security with you frequently, right? Yeah. So Which we got armed security. It's quite unusual for a political reporter were you, were, to have to travel with security. Because of actual death threats. Because of actual death yeah, threats. Yeah. And I get, I get weird things at work sent to me at work that, that people couldn't under, couldn't explain coming from random places. Mm-hmm. Untrackable things, it, it seemed. And so there was, there was a lot of concern about my safety. And my parents were certainly concerned about my safety. But I to bring it back to where we started, I think the reason why I didn't really 
it, I, I was able to compartmentalize it and able to just kind of move past it and not think about it too much, um, not let it get in the way of my reporting, is that my parents did this. You right. Know, it's, right. It's, Can it's, I ask you, why, you, did he, you I, I, why did he pick out you, do you think? I mean, it's not your fault or anything else. I just, I'm just, what was I it about? I had a big sign on my head that said, please point me out. Um, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, he's, the misogyny is so clear to me, but it's always a woman. It's always, why, what he did goes, you do? But hold on. He's, he uses different terms for men. Yes. Uh, for, for men and women. I right. mean, he'll he'll say that that wacky um, uh, congresswoman, congresswoman that he called, I think, Mika Brzezinski, wacky as well. I mean, right. that's a, that's not a term he uses for men. Right. Um, little he does. Little is one he uses for men and women. Yeah. That's the comparison he, to himself. Right? Yeah. yeah it's, He's well, big I, and they're little. Yeah, yeah. exactly. A little, little Kim Jong-un, little Katie Turr, little Bob Corker. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll go after men, though, as well. And he'll, he called Tom Yamas a sleaze, for instance. I think that there's probably a lot of reasons why he singled me out so much. I'm not in his head, so I can't tell you the, the one um, overwhelming factor that was at play. But I will say this. I was um, on the campaign trail earlier than anyone else. I, I was the first network news correspondent covered, uh, assigned to cover him full-time, the first one to essentially take him seriously as a presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, long months where I was the only familiar face in a room for him. So he knew if he wanted to go after the press. And um, you were TV. Yeah, and he, he knew if he wanted to make someone the face of it that I would be back there because I was always there. He got to know me. And once you're on a campaign, once you're a candidate, there gets to be a point where every day is so rote that you don't learn any new information. Yeah. You're only retaining the things you learned in the early days of the candidacy because you can't absorb new information. There's just too much incoming. Yeah, well, I mean, especially with this campaign, it was a, you know, a, a daily deluge of, of, of invective. Um, you, you were also the first, if, if I have this, my memory correct – you were the first on-air reporter to talk about the Access Hollywood tapes. I, I was, think. yeah. Yeah. And it, that was because NBC had the tapes in their vault because Access Hollywood was an NBC. Access distrib- Hollywood had the tapes. But it was an NBC distributed show? They or had something? the tapes before. Yeah, but NBC. Access Hollywood still had the tapes. Right, um, right but, you, but NBC got was aware you, of them. You got them sooner than others. So Yeah, we did because yeah. it uh, yeah, because it's an NBC property. Um I got- How did that how did that feel because for up until that point, you were uh, really reporting on the voters as much as you were reporting on Trump. And all of a sudden, this is personal, it's emotional, it's, you know, about women and, and sexual harassment. And I don't think there is a single one of us covering the campaign that didn't also sort of take this personally. How, how was that going out there first and taking this on? You know, the the first time I heard the tape, I was sitting in an office, and I, I my ear was right up against the computer because the volume was really low, and I, I could make out Donald Trump's voice distinctly. It's a voice at that point I knew better than my own, and you know, he's talking about uh, trying to sleep with a married woman. He's uh, he's saying these things that you know on a hot mic that clearly he wouldn't say um, if he knew, although he had been saying wild stuff on Howard Stern before. So this is not totally out of character. But hearing him say you can grab them by the pussy was, I mean, my jaw cartoonishly dropped to the floor. I remember yelling out in this in this executive's office, in an executive row where everyone's relatively quiet. Oh, my God, did Donald Trump just say he can grab women by the pussy? I mean, mm-hmm. screaming this out. And, and then thinking, you know, wow, if... if 
oh my God, <laughs> I need, <laughs> if anything's going to stop this campaign, it's going to be this. Or is it? You know, I, I think I thought immediately, oh, my God, this he can. Never you were the one who this. kept telling NBC that nothing, none of these other nothing crises mattered. were going to stop. So did I you thought, think this one would? I thought this one might. But then I but almost immediately I thought, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because I mean, I thought it might for a few reasons. One, his campaign went completely dark. Uh, 50 former and current Republican lawmakers were either calling for him to drop out or calling for him uh, or saying they weren't going to vote for him. The crescendo of condemnation was – it was a crescendo. It was loud. Um, then again, I knew that Donald Trump was not somebody who would ever drop out of anything. He would never quit. And if you forced – if you pushed him back into a corner, he would just fight harder. So what happened in – what was going to happen in the debate was my question. How was he going to try and turn this on Hillary Clinton? How would he use Bill Clinton and his accusers? Uh, would that work did. for him? And then the real test was, what's going to happen at his first rally after that? If, if, if the same amount of people, the same amount of enthusiasm is out there, then we'll know it, didn't, it doesn't really matter. And that's, and that's what so happened. So talk about that, the first one. So the first, the first rally out of that was, was thousands of people. Thousands. I don't remember exactly where it was. I think it might have been Ohio. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people screaming and cheering. The more that he was backed into a corner, the more that they felt like they needed to defend him, the louder they got. There was a woman wearing a shirt. An equal that amount said, of women, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I went to several of those rallies there, after and, and that. The, there were Access there were a tapes. lot of women yeah. there, and one woman was wearing a shirt that said. She wasn't the only one, but she was the one that that we got the best images of, I guess. Uh, Donald Trump can grab me by my, and she had an arrow pointed down. Well, looked like a normal classy. woman. She glass. She was wearing glasses. She, uh, she she looked like someone's mom. Right. <laughs> you know, she looked like someone on the PTA uh, at somebody's middle school. Like she didn't look crazy. But she, she wanted her pussy grabbed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess. Unwelcome by, by Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it was it was so, wild. It was wild. They they didn't care. care. Right? Why? Again, I am not a, a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist. Right. I'm not a social other, anthropologist. How but. did the other reporters? We took a few minutes in this section. Uh, re- react to this? To you? Were they? What What happened in the dynamic? Because there is a dynamic among reporters on the campaign trail. In what way? Were they shocked by what was What happened among the group of you? Shocked by the Access Hollywood tape? No, not that. But by the, by the attacks that, on you. Oh, the, by the attacks on me personally, yeah. but on Katie mm-hmm. Turr. They were they were appalled. I mean, I would get I would get people coming up to me, other reporters who I who I who I respect and who I've always looked up to coming up to me and saying, are you okay? I mean, can I walk you to your car? Um, is NBC taking care of you? I can't believe he's doing this. Does he understand what's happening? And then, you know, you broaden it out and, and you say, but this is this is an attack on all of us. And, mm-hmm. and there was real concern that somebody was going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Real, genuine concern that somebody was going to get hurt, surprised that it hadn't happened already. You continued even during those attacks, to, ha- to have a significant amount of access, which I found interesting and I-, I thought in your book was really well described, that you continued to speak regularly with Hope Hicks, who's now the communications director, press secretary in the campaign, that Trump continued to talk to you so that he would use you publicly, but privately you'd still get your stories, you'd still well, get some I interviews never, and you'd I still... Never, 
I never, I had a good relationship. It's a little bit like what Maggie Haberman yeah. does in the print side, right? Where, yeah. you know, he attacks the New York Times constantly, Maggie's but amazing. is consistently yeah. calling up Maggie. So you've become that in many ways on the on the Because you develop, you develop a relationship. And, and there was, you know, some of his campaign staff thought it was, you know, didn't like what he was doing to me specifically. What did they say um, They would, they would. You know, they would they would dance around it, you know, because it's an uncomfortable thing. I was talking to one uh, staffer about um, his attacks on the press uh, and more in general. I don't like to just make it about me towards the end of the campaign. And I said, does does he know what he's doing? Does he know that he's putting us in danger? Does he remember Roanoke, Mm -hmm. the two reporters that got killed on camera? Uh, Is he worried about it? Yes, he knows. No, he's not worried about it. He doesn't care. Doesn't care. Doesn't. Doesn't care. All right. On that note, we're here with Katie Turr from NBC News and MSNBC, where she's a, a correspondent and an anchor. We're talking about her book, Unbelievable. Um, we're going to shift and talk when we get back. I'm also here with Hillary Rosen, a political consultant and also uh, an analyst for CNN. Um, she's here this month talking with me in special bonus episodes of Recode Decode about politics. We have guests that are oriented towards politics. And when we get back, we'll talk about that and more. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge, except this week I was genius enough to replace Lauren with Recode's senior commerce editor, Jason Del Rey. Jason, what did we talk about? We talked a ton about Amazon, everything from their in-home delivery service called Amazon Key. I call it Creepers, Amazon Creepers. Go ahead, move along. To all the new Amazon Echo and Alexa hardware they've mm-hmm. come out with recently. What do you call that? I, I like those. I like They're creepers, but I, they're welcome creepers in my house. But go ahead. What else? Also to the conversation around how the company in its most powerful positions is essentially almost all men. Yeah. Okay. It was a great discussion and we hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Katie Turr. Her new book is called Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. I can't remember the subtitles. So <laughs> That's all right. It. I like that. Uh, <laughs> you you left after when he won. Talk about very briefly what happened You know, toward the end of this campaign. You And then you left covering. I the left. White covering, you didn't go to the White I, House. I didn't go to the White House. So uh, day of the election. Mm-hmm. Um uh, did you he, think he was going to win that day? I did. I did. I thought I must be crazy, but I, 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 I just because all polls it. were to the contrary. Well, it's all known. You actually called it before election day. Yeah, you're I, one of the few that I just consistently I just saw that win. enthusiasm, and I thought yeah, you can't discount it. And bringing um, the emails back up, the Comey stuff was was a way for Donald Trump to convince weary Republicans, moderates, or people on the fence that they home. should come home, that they should vote for him and they can't take the risk of somebody who might be under federal investigation. Oh, what an irony. Um, <laughs> uh, I just I just thought, you know, this this guy has defied all of the odds. Why is it going to change on Election Day? And right. he was right when he would say that he could draw thousands of people, just him on a stage, no guitar. Hillary Clinton needed all the celebrities around her. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was right. That was That's true. She didn't have the same amount of enthusiasm. Who knows what other factors are in play? I'm obviously uh, not a federal investigator, so I can't tell you how uh, Russia came into this and how much uh, sway they may have had or whether or not the campaign may have colluded. I don't know. Um, I know everyone will say, but her emails, but her emails. I, I don't know either. I was covering campaign uh, the Trump campaign, so I rarely talked about that. 
Um, there's, you know, all those answers will come out sooner or sooner or later, or probably not. a little bit down the line, if anything, or not, or nothing. But you made the decision, uh, as Carol alluded to, after the campaign, and, and Recode listeners might not know this, but it's sort of typical after a political, a presidential campaign, for the top reporters covering the candidate that wins to then get what is considered sort of the plum reporting position, which is to be the White House correspondent. I took myself out of and the And you running. decided not to do that. No, I, said, I, I didn't want to go to Washington. I think what made me so effective uh, during this campaign was that I wasn't a political animal and I shouldn't become a political animal. Mm-hmm. I also – A smart had, decision. I had had enough of right. the daily, of the daily uh, interaction with him and his team. I, I, I did it. I wanted to write this book. It would have been really difficult to write this book had I been in the White House press score. And I, you know, I mean, on a personal level, I, I, I'm getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to maintain this relationship. It's the first time I think I made a really a, a personal decision on, in my Also career. a healthy one. I think a lot of people who are covering, I talked to a lot of the reporters covering the White House and they seem ill. Yeah. Well, look at Maggie. Maggie didn't go to Washington. I mean, oh, she was there a bunch. Yeah. She didn't go to Washington. But even covering on a daily basis, they seem exhausted. It I just, is. I mean, it's exhausting even from the position that I'm in as as an anchor covering it every day. I mean, mm-hmm. it was exhausting during the campaign mm-hmm. and it, it was it was infuriating and, and also uh, just tiring having to, to stand up for basic facts. Basic facts. Yes, gravity exists. Mm-hmm. You know, CNN has a great ad out right the now, apple. and I shouldn't, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't be promoting a competitor, but it's a great ad. Yeah. This is an apple. You may hear, you may hear people say it's a banana, but it's not. It's yeah. an apple. I mean, I was just, I was tired of having that fight, mm-hmm. um, day in and day out. I was also tired of being so glued to my, to my email. Yeah. So what you're doing now, you're doing a show, you're doing a daily show. What? Let's talk about this. It's a lot of, to do with politics. It's pretty much all. Like, it's, it's mostly politics. Mostly politics. Yeah. You don't really cover anything else. Talk about where you think the current state we are in this administration. I'm, I'm, because like today, again, the two senators leaving, uh, giving up, essentially giving, like they don't want to cover Trump anymore, essentially. That's what it feels like. Um, or maybe you know, I'm it, wrong. It is, it is everything in relation to Everything now is in relation to Donald Trump. How do people not do you vote on my side, but are you praising me? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where this administration stands. It's not enough to be a conservative. It's not enough to be a Republican voting Republican. You've got to be a Republican who is who is enthusiastic and um, uh, about the president, who is willing to ignore the times that he lies, is willing to uh, say how great he is on camera in those boardroom-esque uh, 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 on-camera sprays, we call them, where mm-hmm. he has everyone go around the room and, room and tell him how great it's very he is. Very dear father and and um, dear leader. Dear leader, Senator Jeff Flake and and uh, Senator Bob Corker, two two Republican senators who've just announced that they're not going to seek re-election. The fact that they have both done that after they took on the president almost is a victory for Donald Trump. Oh, isn't absolutely, it? And, and for it, Steve Bannon, certainly. It's not that they. This have, is not the Republican uh, Party. This is the Trump Party. The they're Republican getting a Party, huge amount of attention for their dissent, yeah. but there are still forty-nine Republican uh, exactly. senators who are way on board. I think it's it's becoming clearer that the Republican Party, as we knew it, is is ceasing to exist. It's now becoming the party of Donald Trump, whatever that is. And then the question is, if the what is the party? What is the policy for the party of Donald Trump? Where do you stand on things? Is it just 
finding a way to say how great he is all the time. Is that is that the, what, what the Republican Party is going to be going forward? So, I mean, that we cover we cover the the fracturing of the party and, and where it goes next every day. Uh, we cover the the press briefing. We try to fact check it as needed. We fact check the president as needed. We're trying to follow this this um, this zeitgeist. Where does it lead next? And then the Democrats. What's going on with the Democrats? They, uh, I want to talk about the Democrats in a minute. But the, Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday, the press secretary, said at a briefing something that got everybody sort of all up in arms again when she said that Donald Trump has accomplished more in his nine months than Barack yeah, Obama did in it's eight a lie. years. And, but what I thought was interesting, and I wonder if the media is covering this enough, which is clearly they've had no legislative victories uh, um, to speak of. But what they have done systematically and effectively that gets, I wonder if you think so, to little media attention is they've essentially begun to dismantle the government, its regulations, its consumer safety, its financial securities, um, the cross the board gamut of regulations that have been changed or are in the process of being changed that will be extraordinarily difficult to undo. Do you think that that's getting enough attention vis-a-vis? So in essence, Donald Trump is accomplishing a huge amount. That is true. But is it the things that people sort of expected and are really thinking about? He's accomplishing a lot through executive order. Um, and But his accomplishments are just, as you said, the rollback of, of regulations. And um, is that being covered enough? You know, I don't think we do. I think we could stand to cover what's going on at the EPA, for instance, a lot more. I think that there's a lot of things that are happening there that that aren't getting enough attention and could have um, severe consequences for the future. You know, we we I think we're falling into the same trap, and and which is he doesn't have legislative victories, and therefore he's not successful. Yeah, yeah. And that we're following the bouncing ball. We're following the bouncing ball. Yeah, the shiny object, yeah. as it were. So talk about that it's in the hard. media. I mean, what in the culpability of that when you think about that idea first, miss the joke the entire time now is indignant almost all the time i, I often have reporters it's dangerous it's dangerous yeah, i have need, reporters going i can't believe it i'm like what the f- the hundredth time he's done it you yeah, know when, no, when are you going to you, believe the it? surprises the surprise and the and the indignation is is misplaced and it's not effective um i i think we need to come at everything with the knowledge of what happened in the campaign which is not to normalize any of this but to but to try and um, try and follow what matters more than, um, again, the bouncing ball, more than the daily tweet or the daily controversy or the fight that he's in today. It's hard because that gets so much attention. It's hard because that's what everybody is talking about. It's hard to pull it back and say, wait, hold on. While you weren't looking, this right. regulation just got um, rolled back uh, or this committee just passed this bill and is trying to, I don't know, undo Dodd-Frank or, or, I mean, any of the number of things that were put into place to protect uh, consumers, to protect investors, to protect homeowners, whatever it is, protect our water, to protect our air, Mm -hmm. to protect our national parks, to protect our monuments, whatever it is. I mean, there's so much that's happening behind the scenes that we we don't get to see because we can't figure out how how much attention because he's attacking widows and orphans now. Yeah, I mean this, is, but it's hard because it again, it's the president of the United right. States. How do you ignore the president of the United States when he says something? It is necessarily 
news when he is there's no diplomacy with North Korea when the the chairman of the Senate um, uh, Foreign Relations Committee Bob Corker says I think he's putting us in danger you have to cover that that is a huge story we have North Korea and nukes how do you not cover the president going after a gold star family a, another widow how do you not how do you not focus on the the, the change in and what we find acceptable in this country, the, the sea change of, of how Americans not only are perceived, but what we tolerate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is so much happening culturally mm-hmm. that, that, that demands our attention. We have to figure out a way to balance that and talk about the what is happening impact. behind the scenes. And this big scenes. picture analysis, this big picture fight that we are constantly participating in, covering, choose your word – is actually the very thing, isn't it, that keeps his supporters on his side. Yeah. Because it's the very thing that makes them believe that he, as long as he's fighting all of us, then he's fighting for them. Yeah. And so if we did shift, if we did say, you know, actually, your water's going to be more polluted. Your kid is going to be less safe in school. If we if we did more of that, I think that the, it's the a result, question as whether no, it would be different is, or not. We don't, well, we don't really know. I don't do think we? it would because 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 if we just talk well, first of all, they don't believe it. Yeah. So what happens with the Dem? What, we have five minutes left. What what do you imagine happens? The Democrat talk a little bit about when you think about as you're now a political reporter, whether you like it or not. <laughs> where does it go? I mean, people talk about the fatigue, and people will get over it, and he'll be voted out, and this and that. What is your assessment? Given I, I don't know. Does it because I think uh, Flake talked about the fever will right. be over when the you have Democrats on your show now. Do you feel like there's an equal fight? Do you feel like, you know, you, you have Democrats around the table as often as you have Republicans around the table. Do you feel like the Democrats have shown up for the challenge in a way that I you think, think gets to the people that you met on the campaign trail? I think they're trying to figure out what the challenge is. Or do we, is. like, need Oprah like, to fight I, Trump? I don't, I, she's no, a, she's I, the anti-Trump, presumably. Here's the thing. I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. I think it's all so – we're all living in this fog and we can't see past it. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how Democrats are going to be able to reach the voter that that maybe voted for for Barack Obama for for eight for which eight they years. did within the two terms. Everybody's capable um, of doing different. Yeah, things. Yeah, which they did, and then they voted for Donald Trump. The message uh, for them is a purely economic message. But Democrats, like Donald Trump's Republican um, competitors as well, get caught up in the in again the the daily the mm-hmm. daily controversy. Oh, Donald Trump is horrible for saying this. So Donald Trump is horrible for saying that. Or Donald Trump is trying to do this or that. I mean, it, it, I think the problem is it can't be about Donald Trump. Except he's has most to interesting be about person their in message. The I mean, who'd you but write a book the about? The only thing people want to talk about is Donald Trump. So right. they have to find a way to, to, to get their ideas, their platform, their policies, their who initiatives. Does who does that? I, I presume it's it's uh, the chairman of the Democratic National. Yeah, but who do you like? Go oh, okay because you you know you had a sense that Donald Trump was more serious before when people were you know Huffington Post called to put him in entertainment. You had a sense that maybe it's that was a huge mistake. Oh, huge. And then the ways. and then the byline uh, or the uh, author, not the byline, the little author note mm-hmm. uh, after after every. Um, I, I just it think ridiculous. it was. I think it was a mistake. I think it was a mistake to to be seen as as being um, combative in that way and cavalier, really. Yeah, or just just being like snarky, just being snooty about it. Yeah. Um, so, what do you? What is your sense of that? Is there any? I don't know. You don't. I know. wish I had answers. <laughs> oh. I, I, 
I think we won't have any of those answers. We won't truly know until all of us get back out on the road mm-hmm. and when, talk to people When you again. are booking your show, when you're thinking about how to present sort of the the antidote to Donald Trump. I, I know. Hold you, on. I, that, that's not my job. My job is mm-hmm. not the antidote to Donald Trump. My job is not to tell people how to vote. My job no, is not to convince people that Donald Trump is terrible. To show both sides. That's what I'm saying. When you're looking at like who... Who are the big gets? Who are the big opportunities yeah. <laughs> for you know? Uh, I mean, right the, now the big other the, voices. The big what, gets what are you, you know the the people that don't want to be gotten because they don't want to get the the hellfire from the other side, which is Kamala Harris, uh, mm-hmm. Cory Booker, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Those are those. She are likes the, hellfire. Yeah, I know. She's good with the hellfire. That's fire. true. Those, She's good those, at are, it back. those are the names that people look at in, in the Democratic Party for potential leaders in 2020. I wonder if there's somebody just completely different that we're just not thinking of. Thinking. And so you think some of the biggest Democratic names are, in essence, avoiding the fight? I think that it's the um, uh, conventional wisdom is that you don't want to put your hat in the in the ring too early because you don't want to be the focus of everybody's attention, yep. right. the focus of all yep. of the criticism. And, his yeah. attention. and therefore, we have a sort of a vacuum of ideas at the same time. Yeah. I'll yeah. say that I as mean, a Democrat. I mean, look, look, look at look um, look I'm, I'm not putting that on you. Look at what the DNC... Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I just wonder if the DNC is 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 has their finger on the pulse. I mean, they they put out a, a press release after Flake announced that he wasn't running again, just attacking Flake, and it's yeah. like, uh, uh, yeah. it's a little tone deaf. It seemed like a lost. He's opportunity. actually quite yeah. articulate about. This. He's more articulate than Democrats about the problem. I, I, You're it, almost like, gosh, he sounds like a Democrat. I think everybody needs to tone it. Tone it the F down. Just mm-hmm. tone it down. Just yep. bring down the volume. Because if we're all loud about everything, nothing penetrates. Right. I think they're, we're facing a, a big dangers um, when it comes to uh, the our, our sovereignty, when it comes to our democratic process, our elections. We have a foreign power that's trying to manipulate us. Mm-hmm. We need to focus on that. That yeah. is a huge story. You can't let that keep happening. Otherwise, where will we be? Look at that that story in the New York Times uh, about Idaho, um, Idaho Falls and fake news, how it's ripping the town apart. Mm-hmm. That's a really scary story. Yes. It terrified me. It made me sincerely worried uh, for our democracy. Are we? Is this the fall of Rome? Are we watching? See, you know, you have Los Angeles parents. I have relatives in the middle of the country. I've had that at every meal, every holiday meal. It's yeah, like but that. you know, it's it's just we need to find a way to yeah. to get back on the same page and to share a set of facts and to share a set of values. Yeah. And yeah. until we do that, I don't know how how anything changes. All right, I don't last know how it gets... question. Are you still in touch with Trump? Uh, I'm in touch with his people. I have not spoken to him. Do you want to do a big interview with him? I would love to. Yeah, of course. Will he? Donald would Trump, sit down and do an interview with me. Will he? Uh, I think that is not. Um, eh, I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. Last time I talked to him, he said I really should sit down for an interview with you. All right. People your... would people would really respect it. They would. What was your first question for him? <laughs> I don't know. Um, why are you so angry? Oh. That's a great question. It is a great question. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. So this is her book, Katie Turr's book, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. It is now available for sale. And you can see Katie on NBC and MSNBC on her show, which she does a great job anchoring, and lots more in the future. Are you going to cover the next? What are you next? on next? What? When are you on next? Whenever you invite me, oh, Katie. Great. I just come when you I You got to drop call. that CNN channel. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just like that Don Lemon. He begs me. Not you. Them. I'm talking about Hillary. Hillary. Oh, yeah, that Hillary. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, yeah. we, have, we have our facts straight. <laughs> we have <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
You, you have apples for sure. Anyway, Katie, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Hillary, for joining me this side of the interview table. We've got a few more to go. Um, if you enjoyed the interview as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with people like Maggie Haberman, David Farenhold, and WTF author Tim O'Reilly. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Two Embarrassed Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference, where we interviewed Donald Trump's opponent, Hillary Clinton, this past year. That's a very good interview. She has not some nice things to say about Donald Trump. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Recode Decode. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thanks to our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here at my usual time on Monday, and then Hillary and I will be back next Wednesday with another great guest. Tune in then.